All right, just a brief introduction here as I, I hand things over to Bill. Bill and Judy come to us from Spokane, Washington. They've been for years. 51. you got to change your bio, brother. 51. 51 years. Honest around here. So, so 51 years, keeping to present counts here. And they, I did check with this. They have 22 grandchildren. That's very recent, the youngest being five years old. So 22 grandchildren with five children. Uh, and after a career in business, Bill planted and pastored a church from 2002 to 2018 in Spokane when in 2018 he stepped down, retired, and a dear brother, dear friend, David, his son, David Farley, stepped into the pastorate there and took over the plant and uh, where David is currently serving with his wife Heidi and their children. And it's a blessing to know that the, the Farley family continues on in ministering. And certainly our, our brother Bill has since then, since his retirement, even before his retirement, has authored several books and articles and has been so useful to the body of Christ. And his, his usefulness has spread across the country to uh, our little section of the world. Uh, in the issue of parenting, among other things, we're so grateful for his book, Gospel Powered Parenting. We've carried that for many years in our bookstore and uh, look forward to foisting Bill upon you and his, uh, his gift of teachings for this day. So very grateful, brother, for your being here and Judy for joining him. And we look forward to the Lord's blessing us through your ministry. So come on down, Bill. Let's welcome Bill. Well, it's a joy to be here and an honor to be here. Uh, we, love to, we love to travel and do these parenting conferences, although they get fairly repetitious for us, but probably won't be for you. But we do it because we're, we're really hoping that when we're dead in not too many years, thank you, Doug, uh, someday in, in eternity we're going to meet children that were influenced through what we did at these conferences, that we influenced parents who influenced our children, who came into God's kingdom through that influence. And that's really our big, our big hope. Um, you, before I start, I want to mention that uh, I have a blog that I do. It's just my name, William P. Farley. I have to put the middle initial P in. But you'll find all kinds of information there that can, might, you might find helpful. Uh, a lot of articles on parenting and marriage especially. Some articles on current affairs and the gospel. But uh, So if that's helpful to you, that's really great. Also, this first talk is going to be called The First Principle of Parenting. It has to do with marriage. And uh, I have written a book called Marriage in Paradise. So as I'm speaking, if, if this, you think I need more help on our marriage, that would be a great resource for you. You can get it at Amazon, at Kindle. Do we have something behind me there? Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's, we've, I know we've already prayed. Let's pray one more time real briefly. Father in heaven, I want to humble myself before you, and my brothers and sisters, we want to humble ourselves and confess our great need to hear from you. We also confess, Lord, that we are, all of us, are slow to hear, slow to respond to you. We need your Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts and our minds. So, Father, we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. We pray that your Holy Spirit would visit us as we break your word and that you would, um, would open our hearts to whatever you want to teach us today. Again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start with a story about a couple named Frank and Kim. Frank and Kim have been married for 30 years. They raised four beautiful children, 
But their marriage was a spiritual battleground. Frank was harsh with his wife, Kim. He took her for granted. He was unaffectionate with her. He seldom communicated with her. He often looked down on her. In his eyes, she was never good enough. Finally, Kim rebelled. She quit cleaning the house. She quit cooking. And she withdrew both emotionally and relationally. With her children, Frank and Kim tried to compensate for their marital problems. Uh, Every day they rose early to teach them the Bible. The family went to church every Sunday. There the children heard the gospel on a regular basis. They invested thousands in the best private education. They scrupulously protected their children from the negative influences of the outside world. They pushed all the right buttons, except the one that really matters, okay, their marriage. And now the children are grown. They've quit going to church. One of their children is a church attender, but his heart is not in it. So what went wrong? Frank and Kim's marriage preached an unattractive gospel to their children. It contradicted the gospel that was preached at church and at school. Now, their real names aren't Frank and Kim. We've been around long enough to see this happen numerous times over and over and over again, so I'm using this couple as an example, but it's representative of, uh, before we planted our church, we'd been in many years in two churches, and we, knew, we raised our children with other couples, and we watched the, the effects of the couple's marriage on, on the, how the children turned out. And so this is a summary of that experience. The marriage of Stephen and Melody was different, however. Steve was warm and loving. He did his best to provide spiritual leadership for his wife and children. Melody tried, although imperfectly, to support him by being submissive to him. Like every couple, they had their disagreements, but they always settled scores quickly and forgave each other from the heart. Stephen made it a practice to apologize to his children when he mistreated his wife in front of them. He understood the power of his example, and he wielded it effectively. They went to the same church with Frank and Kim, and although their three children attended public school, all married, committed Christians, and today are serving God joyfully. Now, I want to pause here for a second and say, how you educate your children is important, but I want to stress with you that your marriage is ten times more important. Than, what, than where your kids get their education. In the long run, it will prove more, much more decisive than whether you homeschool, send your kids to private school, or send your kids to public school. And I'll admit that increasingly, public schooling is becoming a negative option. I don't want to make any rules about public school because it's different everywhere. But I want to stress to you that this, what I'm talking about this morning is that really, I think, the decisive element. And I, I don't want you to feel condemnation I want you to feel conviction. There's a really big difference between those two things. Condemnation leaves us feeling hopeless. We're a failure. We can never please God. Conviction is the opposite. It's I, I don't measure up, but I can change, and God is going to help me change. And God, there's hope for us in the Lord as we seek to follow him. God loves us despite our failings. And conviction causes us to press into God and move forward. Condemnation causes hopelessness. We don't want condemnation. The story of these marriages makes a point. God speaks through our example. Say that with me. 
God speaks through our example. There's an old proverb, children learn more by the eye than they do by the ear. The most important example that parents possess is their marriage. Our marriages preach to our children. They preach a message that either attracts our children to the gospel or repels our children from the gospel. Parents who joyfully pursue God are contagious. Joyful sacrifice for the gospel is contagious. A gospel that makes parents stable, sincere, joyful, affectionate, and humble is a contagious gospel. Children will want the gospel that produces these qualities in their parents. On the other hand, when parents go through the motions of church, enslaved to rules, serving God to gain his acceptance, tolerating their spouses, or worse, engaging in open warfare, they unintentionally chase their children away from the gospel and from church. When mom and dad preach one thing but do the opposite and don't repent to their children, they make the world attractive and they make the gospel irrelevant. Kids internalize their parents' passions. They see what you really love. No one else sees it but your kids, but your kids see it. Not what you pretend to love. Your passion, what gets you really excited. Maybe it's upward mobility. Maybe your passion is entertainment, sports, golf, personal weakness, movies, music. Maybe your passion is hunting or shopping or watching romantic comedies. None of those things are bad in themselves. But your children see what is the foundation that your life is really built upon. They may not ever articulate it to you, but they see it and understand it, and they're going to go where you're, in most cases, where your example leads. If you ask parents what is the most important thing they can do to raise children that will follow Christ, some will mention adequate discipline, others enrollment in the right school, homeschooling or Bible reading. These are all really important, but they rarely mention example. In fact, I can't think of a time when I've ever seen parents in this conversation mention example. But example is the first principle of parenting, example. Parenting is about leadership. An example is the first principle of biblical leadership. When parents practice what they preach, gives them authority in their children's eyes. In other words, your children want to be like their parents. They want to worship the God that their parents worship because they see the fruit of that God, of the, of the parents' relationship with that God in their parents' life, and they want that for their own lives. And that's the way God has designed it to work for us. All teaching in the Bible starts with example. So where are we going this morning? We're going to first of all talk about the power of example. Then we're going to talk about the marriage that preaches the gospel to our children. And then we're going to talk about the example wrecker, the example energizer. And lastly, we're going to talk about resting in the gospel. Because when I'm done, you're going to need to rest in the gospel. I need to rest in the gospel. We're all imperfect. None of us do any of these things perfectly. We need to rest in the grace of God. Okay, so first of all, the power of example. Jesus taught by example. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus said, excuse me, uh, Luke wrote, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Notice the, notice the, the progression there. First he did things, then he taught what he did. 
Jesus is the only person who has done this perfectly. And because he has and you believe the gospel, God will impute that perfection to you. So here's hope. He told his disciples to take up their cross because he took up his cross. Jesus told his disciples to humble themselves because he humbled himself and went to the cross. Whatever the leaders are, the people become, John MacArthur notes. Whatever the leaders are, the people become. I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to a group of church elders this week at another church. And I'm going to stress this idea that the church will become what the elders are. The church, when the elders have formed a community of grace and love and the, the ability to work through their, their disagreements and love and charity, in other words, their relationships are, are is a small community that's what God wants. The rest of the church begins to model that or exemplify that. It's the same with our children and parenting. MacArthur goes on. Biblical history demonstrates that people will seldom rise above the level of their spiritual leadership. Dave Harvey adds, quote, true leadership models its message. The leader proclaims with two voices, one through his lips and the other through his life. Together, these messages convert to create a solid platform of credibility and stature. Tim Challies, I'm going to read another quote from Tim Challies because it's so good. Challies wrote, why, I ask the question from time to time, why are all five of my parents' kids following the Lord? Well, so many of our friends and their families are not. I can think of one great difference between my home and my parents' home, my friends' homes. Though it is not universally true, it is generally true. Here's the difference. I saw my parents living out their faith even when I wasn't supposed to be watching. Even when I wasn't supposed to be watching. Your, your kids are watching everything you do. When I turned, let's see, what was the occasion when Annie wrote that thing, Judy? Okay, I can't share that. Judy's going to share it later. But to, our kids have told us as grown adults, the things that they noticed about us growing up, and we didn't have any, really? You notice that? I mean, there were little things like Charlie's is going to mention here. When I tipped down the stairs in the morning, I would find my dad in a family room with his Bible open on his lap. Every time I picked up my mom's old NIV study Bible, it was a little more wrecked than the time before. I would find a little more ink on the pages and a few more pieces of tape trying desperately to hold together the worn binding. When life was tough, I heard my parents reason from the Bible, and I saw them pray together. They weren't doing these things for us. They weren't doing them to be seen. They were doing these things because they loved the Lord and loved to spend time with him, and that spoke volumes to me. See what happens if, you, if your kids see you finding your happiness in Christ. They're going to say, hmm, I want to find... My parents are happy, and the source of their happiness is Christ. I want to get to that same source. That's the way God has designed it to work, and that's what Charlie's is saying here. I had the rock-solid assurance that my parents believed and practiced what they preached. I knew they actually considered God's word trustworthy because they began every day with it. I knew they believed God was really there and really listening because they got alone with him each morning to pray for themselves and for their kids. I saw that their faith was not only formal and public, but also intimate and private. Here is one thing I learned from my parents, Charlie's goes on. 
Nothing can take the place of simply living as a Christian in view of my children. No amount of formal theological training, church attendance, or family devotions will make up for a general apathy about the things of the Lord. I can catechize my children all day and every day, but if I have no joy and I have no delight in the Lord, and if I am not living out my faith, my parents will see it and know it. And your kids will never say that to you. They'll never tell you that they're seeing it and knowing it. At least our kids never said that to us. I don't know any parents whose kids have said to them, you know, whose 12-year-old says, you know, Mom and Dad, I notice you don't really find your joy in the Lord. <laughs> or, Mom and Dad, I notice that you really find your happiness in Christ. They're not going to say things like that. It's all kind of subconscious. But your example is crucial. So here's my point. Parenting is the most important leadership position in the church. A Puritan, Archbishop Tillotson, who died in 1694, said, quote, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them on the way to hell. Okay. Now, you never quit being a parent. I remember when I was 35, 35-ish, mid-30s, Judy's dad, who was my age then, said something like this, you never quit being a parent. And I thought, what? We're in our 30s, and Judy's has an older brother and an older sister who are in our 40s. Come on, we're, kids are grown up. Uh, you're not really a parent anymore. But now that I am a parent of grown children and have 22 grandkids, how true that is. You never quit being a parent. How you're parenting, how your relationship with your kids changes as they get older, but you never quit carrying anxieties about them, worries about them, and they never quit having problems. There's never a time when one of them isn't going to be struggling with something, having marital issues, parenting issues, health issues. There's issues. Grandkids that don't know the Lord that you're praying for, okay? There's always things that you're anxious about as parents. So you never quit being an example, and this principle never quits operating, although it's most operable when your kids are still at home. Parenting is the most important leadership position in the church. I've said all this to bring us to this point. Our marriage is the most important example that we possess. This talk will discuss two important examples. They are closely related. The first is the example of our marriage, and the second is the example of our humility, or negatively, our pride or our arrogance. So first of all, marriage. The marriage marriage that preaches the gospel. Ephesians 5 is the blueprint Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians 5. For marriage, in these verses, God gives us clear marching orders. Ephesians 5.22, please. This is utterly, politically incorrect, what we're going to read next, as you probably already know. And 10 years ago when I was here, we were here last, it was less politically incorrect than it is today, you know? Outside environment is becoming more and more hostile. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Um, 
this shouldn't surprise us, this discussion about submission, because the Bible commands submission everywhere. Slaves, submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your husbands. All Christians, submit to your pastors. All Christians, submit to governing authority, civil authority. Submission is a really big topic in Scripture, and you can't really be a Christian, male or female, and not desire to have a submissive attitude towards authority, and we learn that from our parents, okay? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her word, so that he might, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife him, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love, him, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this text stresses the truth that marriage is about preaching the gospel. Verse 32 makes that clear. This mystery marriage is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages are designed to model the gospel, the created uh, the, the relationship created between Christ and his church by the gospel, okay? And so uh, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to submit to and respond to that love, even when it's imperfect. To whom do our marriages preach primarily? Well, it preaches to our children. The message our marriage preaches either uh, repels or attracts our children. God wants your child to look at your marriage and think, I want a marriage like that. And I want the God that produced that marriage. Or, when I think of the beauty of the gospel, I think of my parents' marriage. I want to be part of a church that's loved by God the way my father loved my mother. I want to be part of a church that finds its joy in submitting to Christ like my mother found her joy in submitting to Christ by submitting to her husband's authority. We don't have time to spend a lot of time talking about submission and headship. I'm no... You've probably gotten really good teaching on that here in your church, but I'm trying to make this bigger point that your children are watching. And your children know what the Bible's teaching on marriage. You probably have preaching from the pulpit on this regularly, and they know the way it's supposed to work. The gospel is the good news that the groom loves his bride. The gospel summons Christ's bride to yield to the servant authority of her crucified king. So here's Paul's point. Every marriage, Christian and non-Christian, preaches this union. It either makes it ugly or it makes it attractive. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, that's sacrificial love. And brothers and sisters, I will tell you that I am very imperfect at this, but I try. And I know you men also, like me, are imperfect. You'll never know how imperfect you are till you really try to love this way. And when you really try to love this way, then you discover how sinful you are, and that's a good thing. That, that Then you be, cast yourself upon God's mercies. You need Christ more. You need the gospel more. You need God's love more. You discover more of God's love for you. It's the way it's supposed to work. But if you never try to love this way, 
you never discover these things. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, and tenderly leading her, his, his marriage says Christ loves his church. You can trust the groom. He is infinitely loving. You can waste your life on him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband humbly loves a, a menopausal or premenstrual wife whose behavior says, his behavior says, despite the fact that she is sinful and unpleasant and unattractive right now, Christ loves his church. His behavior tells his children Christ loves his bride even when she's unattractive. It says, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, even my failings. Okay? Now, your kids will never articulate this to you, probably. And the truth is, they may never make the full conscious application of this. But this, there's a joy in a marriage that's working properly, that, that gets communicated to the children, that makes the gospel irresistibly attractive. That's what I'm trying to say. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, or verbally belittles her, or loves his children more than her, or takes her for granted, his marriage says, Christ's love is not that great. He only loves us when we perform. You can't trust this Savior. You can never meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why, my father doesn't keep his marital vows. Why, uh, why serve a fickle despot? Dad's deeds say many things can separate me from the love of Christ. My mother's weaknesses cause my father to withdraw, withdraw his love from my mother. Wives also preach. When mom joyfully submits to her husband as to the Lord, verse 22, the as to the Lord there is really crucial. You're doing it because you love the Lord, not your husband. Recognizing that he is her head as Christ is the head of the church, and that she is the, his body as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement when she does this for an unworthy husband like me and like your husbands, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts God to care for her. It points her children to Christ. Her behavior says, Christ is trustworthy. Her submission says, the Son of God is infinitely good. You can trust him. My dad is very imperfect, but my mother trusts Christ to take care of her, despite my dad. If she can trust Jesus this way, I can trust him also. See the logic here? But when a wife tells her children to obey Christ and to trust Christ, but she doesn't trust Christ enough to take care of her, when her imperfect husband asks her to go along with something she disagrees with, and she responds with attempts to control him, I know none of you do this, she resists his authority, refuses to respect him, declines to serve him. Her actions speak loudly. They say, the Son of God cannot be trusted. I don't trust him to take care of me. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he will exalt me if I humble myself. He says he will take care of those who lawfully submit to his authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? In most cases, her children will internalize what she does not what she teaches, okay? Homeschooling moms, here's a caution to you. I know a lot of you homeschool. Homeschooling is really a good thing. Let me suggest to you that how you relate to your husband will be long-term, will be five times more 
have five times more influence on your children than how you relate to them. Okay, and and the, one, of the, one of the temptations of homeschooling is for the family to revolve around mother and the homeschooling curriculum. And I, I would just caution you that you want to try to resist that and have your family revolve around your husband, his calling, and through your husband to revolve around God, not your children. Okay, just a suggestion. I know it's a temptation. It's a temptation to all homeschooling families because of the nature of how homeschooling works. Just an encouragement to you to resist that. What can we do to obtain marriages like this? Well, first, we need to deepen our relationship with God. There's a, I have a little triangle. Do you have that there? There we are. Good. This is, whenever I do marriage counseling with a couple, I always share this triangle. Getting closer to each other. How do we get closer to each other? We don't, get, we don't start out by trying to get close to each other. We both start out by trying to deepen our relationship with God. And as we both draw closer to God, what happens? We get closer to each other. We can solve 80% of marital problems by both husband and wife practicing uh, daily disciplines of Bible reading and prayer by the husband and wife praying together. I've never had a couple come to me for marriage counseling that answered this question affirmatively. Do you pray together regularly? It's always no. And so the first thing I try to get them to start doing is to forgive each other and to begin praying together because as we deepen our relationship with Christ and God, what happens? We're motivated to forgive. We're motivated to love the unattractive. We are motivated to begin to serve sacrificially. We're motivated to walk out Ephesians 5. We're motivated to begin to listen to each other and not react to each other, on and on and on, and it begins to heal the relationship. So this is how we start. This is how we build healthy Christian marriages. So we've talked about, we're talking about example, and we've, we're talking about marriage as the first example, the marriage that preaches the gospel. Let's pivot for a second and talk about the great example wrecker. Um, what can wreck our example? Hypocrisy cripples our parenting example. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we'll talk about this more, guys, in the second session. But what, be, what motivates our children to, uh, provokes them to anger more than anything else is hypocrisy us saying X and doing Y, okay? And not even caring about the fact that those two things don't go together. All of us, because we're sinners, are going to say X and do Y, but a humble person is going to, I'm sorry, I've been teaching you X. I've been doing Y. Forgive me. I'm going to change and start doing what I'm preaching, okay? So we're all going to fail at this, but humility causes us to, to uh, admit it and try to change. Behind hypocrisy is the real culprit, pride. Pride is blindness to our faults, sins, and failings. Uh, I'm tempted to go into politics here, and I can't do that, so would you pray for me? Because <laughs> blindness, there's incredible blindness in our culture right now. People saying X when they're the main, you know, crying out to people, you're doing, you're wrecking democracy. Well, they're really the ones wrecking democracy, for example. How is that possible? It's pride that causes that. Pride blinds us to our own weaknesses. 
And we do the same thing in our marriages. We can be completely convinced that we are a humble, tender-hearted, kind, loving person when we are the exact opposite. And because we're arrogant, we're totally blinded to our own sins and weaknesses. I'm reading the Steve Jobs biography right now, the guy that founded Apple Computers. He was a genius, but he was an arrogant ass. There's no other way to put it. He was a horrible person, and he was totally blind to his weaknesses. He was, uh, his biographer, he, before he died of cancer, he hired this guy, Isaacson, to do his biography. I want you to do my biography, and I don't want you to wallpaper over anything. I want you to tell it all, my strengths and my weaknesses. Okay, Isaacson said, I'll do that, but you know you have a reputation for being a real jerk. He said, yeah, I know I do, but I, I'm never going to read the biography. I'm going to be dead when it's published, but I, I want you to say it like it is. So he does. And as you're reading it, you're thinking, this man's problem is he's totally blind to himself, you know. And that's all of us. That's the human condition. It, as a Christian, we have the gospel, which helps us grow in humility. And I've written a book on this subject. It's my most important book. But it's my least selling book because, like my publisher said, Bill, uh, he said, nobody thinks they need humility. It's going to sell slowly, but we believe in this book, so we're publishing it. See, that's the issue, isn't it? We all think we're humble. That's because we're, pri we're, we're full of uh, arrogance, and we're blind to our arrogance, okay? This is the example record in marriage. This is what will cause our example to go south. Here's the problem, though. Although you don't see your sins and weaknesses, your kids see them with crystal clarity because they're proud, too. And proud people find it very easy to see all the weaknesses in other people but they can't see those weaknesses in themselves. And your kids are proud. Pride has many symptoms. First, proud parents see their children's sins with 20-20 clarity, but they're unable to see the same sin in themselves. In Jesus' words, we try to remove the speck from our child's eye when we have a log in our own eye, Matthew chapter 7. Second, pride makes us uncorrectable. When I'm unwilling to receive correction, it tells my children that I really have little interest in personal holiness. And this is especially important for fathers, because although the father is the head of his family, he should be open to his wife's correction when she comes to him. And his children should be able to see him humbly listening to his wife and taking correction from her. Or if he hasn't done it in the past, saying, sweetie, I'm sorry, I should have listened to you about X, Y, and Z, which has been me many, many times because I didn't listen when I should have, and I paid the price, okay? Pride makes us uncorrectable. When my, I receive correction, it tells my children that I have, when I'm unwilling to receive correction, it tells my children that I have very little interest in growing in holiness. The greater our pride, the greater is our capacity to teach one thing and do another, just like Steve Jobs, completely unaware of our hypocrisy. So here's my point. Pride, displaying itself as hypocrisy, provokes children to anger. When mom invests herself in her career selfishly, it's not wrong to have a career, okay, by moms. That's, that's up to each couple. But if she has a selfish career, by that I mean she t basically gives her husband the finger and says, I'm going to work whether you want me to or not. I'm going to do this because I need to be self-actualized. I need to make much of myself. I need to be important. I hope that's not going on here. It's probably not because this is a gospel-believing congregation. 
But the kids see that. They recognize what's going on. And then she expects unselfishness from her children. Two things happen. First, the children ignore mom's words. Instead, they follow mom's example. And second, they become hardened to her values. When a father takes his family to church each Sunday, but invests his life in his hobbies instead of Christ, the children grow hard and calloused towards church and religion. Malcolm X was one of the most influential black Americans in the 20th century. And although his father was a pastor, Malcolm rebelled and became the leader, uh, the leader of the nation of Islam. Why did he do that? What went wrong? Well, in his book, Mission in Action, Weldon Hardenbrook writes, quote, there were serious reasons why young Malcolm couldn't receive the teaching of his father. His father, Earl, had so many rules, <clears throat> it was hard for his children to remember them all. Now, remember, his father's a Protestant pastor. But according to people who knew him, he failed to observe the rules himself. Biographer Perry Bruce wrote, quote, in addition to being brutal to his wife and children, he was notoriously unfaithful to his wife, Louise. A natural-born whoremonger is what his friend Chester Jones called him. From childhood onward, Malcolm would have great difficulty trying to decide whether to follow the path of virtue his father preached or the path of vice he often practiced. Martin Luther King, same thing. John F. Kennedy's father, same thing. We could go through example after example here. Okay, these men all did some good things, didn't they? But fundamentally, although they did some things that were good, their lives were riddled with hypocrisy. But true believers have a better hope. It lies in the gospel because the gospel humbles us. And that humility attracts our children to our teaching. Okay, So, we, by the way, that verse, did you guys write that verse for Holy, Holy, Holy this morning about the gospel and the cross? Well, somebody, it was really nice. It was a great addition to that song. But the gospel, the gospel um, humbles us. We see ourselves, we see Christ hanging on the cross. We look at him and we say, God, is that what I really deserve? That's what I deserve. If you don't believe in hell for any other reason, believe in it just by looking at the cross. There's the eternal Son of God hanging there, being tortured to death in absolute agony, taking the judgment that I deserve and that you deserve. And, you know, if we think about that a lot and meditate on it, it's very humbling to us. Gospel-powered humility. It, the gospel is designed to humble us, to put us in our proper place. And that humility brings joy because we, we first are humbled, then second, we, we look at that and we go, God, and look at your love for me. That's what I deserve. God the Father is pouring out his wrath on your son in my place. I deserve that wrath, and that you're loving the one that you're angry with this way. That's how you feel about me. So Calvin said, God loves the people that he hates. This is kind of a complex subject, but we're talking about, we're talking about love is not an emotion, and hatred is an emotion. That's how God feels about me. Wrath on the cross, but he's loving his enemies so that he can be reconciled to us so that the wrath can be propitiated or removed so that God now can lavish us with affection, okay? I mean, this is, when we get that, it's much easier for us to receive criticism or correction from those around us. 
I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying easier. It's still hard for us, isn't it? Because we're sinners. But the point is, the more we think about the cross, the more humble we become and the more approachable we become and the more entreatable we become. The gospel opens my eyes to who I really am. Revelations 3. I'm wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked apart from the gospel. Now, biblical humility, notes G.A. Pritchard, is not some self-induced groveling or hangdog attitude. Biblical humility is seeing ourselves as we are. Humility is a response to beholding the holiness of God, end of quote. So in addition, we grow in humility by attempting to live Ephesians 5, as I mentioned a moment ago. Husbands, love your wives. We try to, as Christ loved me. Now, we just talked about what that love looks like, guys. You really understand this, and you really see how God loved you. He poured out his love for you this way when that's how he felt about you. So what does that mean about our marriages? Not only that, but he did that for us when he didn't need us at all. Had no need for us. God is totally needless. Just meditate upon that and imagine yourself doing anything without need. We do everything from need. But God poured out his love for us when he had do nothing to enhance his happiness. He didn't need us. He was totally happy and complete in himself. I mean, I mean, this is love that's utterly supernatural. So when we see that, then we say, oh, I'm going to try and love my wife this way. And you try, you're going to find out just how utterly lost you are. And, you need, and so it's very important to cover your sinfulness, which will then humble you and make you more untreatable and make you more correctable. See the, the process, but it doesn't start until we really attempt to walk it out. Humility impacts parents several ways. First, it makes us quick to admit wrongdoing. In the same way, growing humility makes us quick to confess sin to our spouse. Sweetie, I'm sorry that I was such a grump yesterday. I was really I was really a butt yesterday. Would you forgive me? You deserve better treatment than that. Okay? Or five minutes ago or whenever it was. Many times I went to my children and asked their forgiveness for my harsh or ungodly treatment of their mother. And I did that because I knew how important this was. I knew how important this principle was, and I knew I needed to humble myself in front of my children. So what does that do with your children? Well, it, it, when you do that, your leadership goes up. Your esteem goes up in the eyes of your children. It doesn't go down. It's just the opposite. Uh, it's like a magnet that attracts your children to your leadership as a father or as a mother. Confession sends a crucial message to our children. It reminds them that, yes, my parents are imperfect, but they are in deadly earnest about following Christ, about wanting to change, about doing things God's way. Since growing humility opens our eyes to our sin, it makes us tender and gracious when we discipline our children, and we'll talk about this more later. True humility flows out of a heart broken for its sins and failings. Humble parents attract their children's favor. Humble parents cause children to want the God that's produced that humility in their parents. Most importantly, we need to remember that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How many times does the Bible say that? Dozens of times in different ways. 
So one way that God would oppose you, oppose you if you're proud and not trying to change and grow in humility is he would cause your children to not respond to the gospel or not respond to uh, your example, okay? So it's, it's God that we need to be concerned about here, not so much our children. God, I want to be pleasing to you. I don't want you opposing me in my parenting efforts. I want you cooperating with me in my parenting efforts. But God gives grace to the humble. Say that with me. God gives grace to the humble. None of us are adequately humble. I'm not adequately humble. You're not adequately humble. But those who are trying to grow in humility, God gives grace to people like that. And how does he give us grace? He gives us influence with our children. And we need power to influence our children. Okay? I mentioned my book, Marriage in Paradise, because I know some of you are feeling convicted right now. I'm feeling convicted giving this talk. So, but you, you might find that book helpful. Let's close with an, an admonition to rest in the gospel. You are imperfect, and I'm imperfect. You fall really short, and I fall really short. So what's the wonderful news that we have? We have a gospel of grace. Jesus went to the cross and suffered, atoned, propitiated the Father's wrath. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus is the only person that loved everybody perfectly. He loved his bride, the church, perfectly. When you put your faith in him, all of his perfections are imputed to you. When you put your faith in him, the judgment that you deserve for your sins and failings are imputed to Christ and they're judged at the cross. This is wonderful news. With this news, we can move forward knowing that we're imperfect, knowing that we're never going to perfectly measure up as parents, we're never going to perfectly measure up in our marriage. We can live with that because we have the gospel. But what, the only thing that's, that's not acceptable is to not be willing to try and change. That's unacceptable because the conditions for the gospel are faith and repentance. And repentance means, God, I'm trying to do things your way. I'm willing to try. I can fail all I want if I'm willing to try because the gospel is this tremendous pressure relief valve when I fail. But it's not acceptable for me to not try and be what God wants me to be.